Welcome to Automotive Insiders, the podcast series presented by OESA, the Original Equipment Suppliers Association. You'll hear from automotive industry experts on the critical issues that are impacting the mobility landscape. Get actionable insights on how to thrive in Automotive 2.0. Now, here's your Automotive Insiders host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome to Automotive Insiders presented by OESA, Original Equipment Suppliers Association. I'm producer and host Bonnie D. Graham, and have I got an interesting guest for you today. We're going to cover some topics we have not talked about on any of our many previous OESA Automotive Insiders podcasts. So I'm very happy to welcome, I can see him on the video, I hope you all get to see him, Tom Roberts at QAD. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Tom is the Vice President of Automotive and Mobility at QAD. And for our listeners, you may be familiar with QAD, that's three letters, all caps, no periods in between, and it's pronounced individually because we had the pleasure of welcoming Terry Onika from QAD on a show recently, you've probably already heard. Tom Roberts, welcome, how are you? Doing great, Bonnie. Great, great to be here. Well, I'm very happy to have you and two representatives from the same company in the same, the same month is exciting for us. Tell me a little bit about your background, Tom. What are you doing in automotive? Was this something you started out with? Don't tell me about your first car yet, but was this a career you chose <laughs> years ago, a few years ago, or did you get here by other means? Talk to us about what you did. So, um, Bonnie, great question. In, in the late 90s, I uh, graduated from college and came back home to the Detroit area and went to a job fair for EDS, actually. And they were hiring for a Chevrolet account. And so my first automotive-related job was answering customer service calls for Chevrolet Motor Division <laughs> on behalf of EDS. Wow. Yes. So, so talk to me. So did at that point, did you say, I love talking about cars. I want to stay in automotive. How, give me the path to all of the career moves you've made. I know you've worked from really big companies. Tom, huh? tell me more. Sure. So, you know, in working for that account, um, you know, we moved through different areas and focuses actually, because you can do things with uh, product viability or alternative dispute resolution with legal that actually all flows from the customer service. And I went into a group called ADR. And there were just a few things that we did technologically to try and help uh, the analysts working on the cases. And I, I got the bug for IT. And so I went into an ERP path uh, with QAD, um, then went to a Delphi account, um, then joined Accenture, uh, had a number of accounts there, including a couple of automotive, and uh, you know, went to Johnson Controls. Uh, and then was at Wi-Fi, and now I'm at QAD, all automotive roles, and uh, you know that's where I am today. Interesting. If if you could be a mentor to young people, saying go answer the phones for a major automotive and a vehicle dealer, and you will find the career <laughs> of your dreams. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I have done the gam- gamut of jobs, including you know help desk coding. <laughs> technical design all the way up to you know CIO so I've had a very uh, broad exposure to both am, IT uh, and automotive so 
I'm an early woman in tech, Tom, so I, I understand. I was coding in COBOL for a Xerox Sigma 6 CP5 in the state of Oregon in the 19, I'm not going to tell you when, in the key, <laughs> the key punch era, and then PL1 on an IBM 4341 with actually where we could enter the code on the machine, on the terminal. We didn't have to carry the punch cards around. So the I punch know. cards, right? Oh, yeah. The, yes, the 80-column Holeris cards. That's right. And the green bar paper, I still have some. I still have my COBOL coding book, just so you know. If you ever want to borrow it, that's <laughs> fine. So I, I have great respect for people who started in tech back when it wasn't even called IT. It was called information management systems or management information. They couldn't make up their mind if it was IMS or MIS, but that's what it was, or the computer department. Anyway, fascinating background. Tom, I have a very personal question for you. You can decline to answer, but I have a feeling you're comfortable with this. Do you remember your first car, where, when, what year, what color, anything you're allowed to tell us about what you did in that car or where you yes. took it? Go ahead. <laughs> I uh, My first car was a hand-me-down from my mother. It was a 1981 Buick Regal which I didn't get until 87 or 88, <laughs> had 90,000 miles on it. Um, silver uh, had white wall tires and wire rims. <laughs> um, but that was my first car. And, you know, it was, it was a great car. It was, you know, it was driven actively. <laughs> um, so, you know, young teenage male driver. So, you know, it was uh, fairly indestructible um, and served me pretty well. So it was a great car. Um, we even had, my mom had had her initials actually put on the car right under the window, just very small. So I had the HKR <laughs> on the vehicle after I received, after I had it. So, Your mother was ahead of so, her time in personalizing a car. I don't know anybody who did She just wanted a little tiny thing on there. Isn't so. that cool? Do you remember the color yeah. of the car? It was silver. Yeah. Silver and had uh, blue interior. Blue interior. My brother, it, it was kind of like that velour my brother calls it mouse fur. <laughs> Was it a bench seat straight across? Bench seat? Uh, yes, they were bench seats. Absolutely. How did I so. know? I think I inherited my mother's little white Buick Skylark at some point, my first car when I was 16, but it was a few years before you started with your mom's car. So I think there's a, tr a tradition. And what state were you living in when at this time? Where were you living? Michigan. 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 Okay. I was in yeah. on Long Island, New York. Very Southeast Michigan. I thought maybe there was a uh, New York, Michigan connection on moms giving their cars to, never mind, we'll go somewhere else. <laughs> Tom, we have some important topics to talk about with you. And one is the impact of changes in the workforce on where automotive is heading. And we know that there is a push, a move for so many reasons to EVs, electric vehicles. And we know that we are trying so hard to come out of the pandemic. It is now just full disclosure to our audience. Today is October 4th, 2021. Pandemic started early, officially early 2020. So we're about a year and a half in, not quite out safely, but we're still trying and hoping. So there have been changes in the workforce. Let's talk to you. I know you have written some papers, some articles about this, what you call an honest conversation about jobs and automotive. And Tom, how will this impact or how is it already impacting where automotive is trying to go for the good of the industry, for the good of consumers, for the good of the planet. It's a big topic. Talk to me. Yeah, I think one of the latest uh, things that have happened, uh, Bonnie, is certainly the announcement of the plants by Ford 
uh, in Kentucky and Tennessee, um, you know, battery plants and so forth that they're building in that area. And that's, that's the latest big uh, announcement, I would say. But the number, uh, the investment number uh, for the move to EVs has increased to $330 billion over the next five years uh, and increased by 41% just over the last number, which has been released you know, a few months previous to that. So because of the increase in uh, market capitalization for the biggest OEMs, which doubled basically since 2019, they've got a lot more room to move and they've got a lot more room to speed up the transition to EVs. And I think they actually want to move uh, much more quickly than I think anybody realized before, because you don't want to be playing that game where you're kind of trying to straddle both for a very long period of time. At least that's my opinion is that it's going to try and speed that. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing today. So with that transition to moving to EV so quickly, you know, there's 130,000 jobs in the United States, um, I think uh, actually Ann uh, Ann from OESA uh, quotes, there's 130 supplier jobs and 75,000 in Germany. So it's just 130,000, 75,000 from Germany and the U.S. alone that support ICE-related components or internal combustion engine-related components. And those jobs potentially um, might go away or be significantly reduced just the next probably eight years or so. Um, and that's going to cause a lot of changes in the industry. Um, not all of those jobs necessarily are fungible uh, from one thing to another. You can't necessarily take everybody that works on those, uh, those engine plants or transition plants and simply move them to a battery plant. And, you know, I think that, you know, some of the leadership of the OEMs, you know, they've lamented that. They, they know that that might not be fully um, able to happen. And that's where uh, I had the opportunity to write an article, and it really was premised on a quote from Ola Kleni, who is the CEO for Daimler. And he said, if we're going to speed the automotive, uh, the move to EVs, then, quote, we need to have an honest conversation about jobs. And that's where I think, Bonnie, that we're headed is, you know, if you take the that movement to EVs and you're going to have that, you know, change in the workforce, and we know that there's a bunch of issues today with, you know, staffing and trying to get people to fill positions or stay in positions. Um, it's going to be very, uh, the ground is going to keep moving under our feet, I think, because people are trying to staff these um, positions and trying to make these changes. And I think that we're going to just, uh, we're going to see a lot of uh, potential supply chain issues. I think we're going to see a lot of, you know, I mean, for example, uh, I think that they announced there's almost 11,000 jobs that will be created in Kentucky and Tennessee from those two Ford plants. Um, I would have concerns that they're going to be able to fill those, really? right? Because there, there's, yes, I mean, there's there's a lot of issues filling a lot of jobs today. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden you're creating uh, that many more jobs while you're still trying to run other plants, right? You still have all these other plants yeah. that you're trying to run, you know, engine transmission, uh, final assembly, metal stamping, uh, metal fabrication, and so forth. You have to run those, but you need to also create these other plants at the same time. So the staffing is just going to be a very, very difficult uh, action to complete. Interesting. So. I've, I've been made it. Thank you for that, Tom Roberts. Uh, interesting. I was made aware that there are problems filling openings in the restaurant industry, for example. 
and mm-hmm. other industries, service industries, not manufacturing, but service, direct to customer, if you will, face-to-face industries. I wasn't aware of that in automotive. And you mentioned that there will be a change in the need for certain jobs, which leads me to another topic I want to talk about. I want to talk with you about the number of parts and, and I don't know a lot about cars, so I have a little cheat sheet here on what's coming. The change in the number of parts in the powertrain, fewer yes. labor hours will be required to assemble these vehicles versus where they are now. So there's always a big fear, Tom, is are jobs going away? Will they be replaced by automation, by robotic processes? And now you're saying there will be a natural, not an attrition, but a dilution of the need for these workforces because the cars won't need that much labor. So how is how is this going to impact the future of the automotive workforce? What do you see? So I think that that's what um, uh, the CEO for Daimler is trying to say, is if you have 30% fewer labor hours required to assemble a vehicle, uh, an EV vehicle, then you simply just don't require as many people. Um, and then if you're looking, that's the OEM side, if you're looking at the supplier side, you know, if you're a transmission plant, you know, there might not be the need for all of those transmission plants, um, say, maybe eight years from now, when I think that a lot of the forecasts think that the EV demand will uh, surpass ICE demand, probably about eight years or so from now. Um, so if you think about it, you know, if you just say you cut it in half, you know, maybe half of those transmission plants are needed, uh, or half of those, you know, fuel systems or whatever it might be. Um, and that, of course, you know, the reduction in the amount of labor hours, the reduction in labor force, you know, corporate environments probably will contract as well because you don't have to support as many uh, productive environments or employees. So HR staffs, IT budgets, um, there could be a lot of areas that are affected by this. So you have this, Bonnie, along with this strange labor environment that we mm-hmm. seem to be in right now, where not only I think is it is it restaurants and, and uh, hospitality, but you know there's also issues staffing automotive uh, jobs as well, major issues. Um, just anecdotally speaking, you can see in Michigan, you know, postings for eighteen dollars, eighteen fifty an hour for Amazon, or you can see eighteen dollars for Aldi uh, postings for the working in their warehouses. Whereas a lot of the manufacturing, automotive manufacturing plants that need people, kind of entry level folks, are advertising thirteen eighty or fourteen or fifteen. Um, the question might be asked: Are union dues uh, on top of that? So, you know, when you compare that to working, you know, for Amazon or one of these other companies, there's a, there's a potential disparity there, and automotive unfortunately, is probably the least able to account for that difference. Meaning you can't, you know, if you're a tier one, you can't just increase all your wages to, to $19 because, you know, you're trying to get this piece price from OEMs and you can't just tack that on there necessarily. But if you don't have people in the seats doing the work, then you don't have parts being produced. So that specifically, Bonnie, is where I see automation coming in and companies are going to need to speed their actions that move them toward automation. Interesting. It's funny, you you mentioned. Yeah, go ahead. You go. Yeah, it's funny. You you mentioned restaurants. I saw um, in a a video the other day of a restaurant in Miami, a Cuban restaurant that actually has robots 
and they're assigned to the wait staff and they actually handle some of their actions, some of their duties for them. Like they'll move, uh, take food to the table or put, bring plates back if the people put them on there. So they don't say that they're taking over their job. They say, we're, we're giving you an assistant because they already can't find people. So it's not like they're displacing somebody. They're saying, hey, we know you need extra help. Here's a robot that's going to help you do that. Um, and I think that automotive is, is again, going to have to focus on automation because something is different in the workforce. I don't know how to, I don't say, I don't want to say wrong or right, or mm-hmm. it's just different. And it's hard to staff these jobs right now. Thank you, Tom. It, it brings up questions of talent wars, which are happening in many industries. It also brings up questions about attracting the best and the brightest. How do you bring in the best and the brightest? If at certain levels, I know you're talking about, it sounds like you're talking about uh, assembly types of jobs, actual manual labor, con- putting the, the car together jobs. But how do you bring them in if you're not able to be competitively priced and you're not able to say there's a career path here? And I remember a few years ago, Tom, talking to on one of my, my radio shows for SAP about the future of manufacturing, the factory of the future. People were saying that their children, their sons and daughters were excited to get factory jobs because they weren't just standing there pushing a button they were actually holding an ipad that had some instructions for artificial intelligence for moving a machine or getting a robot to do something they were on the shop floor and they were doing something with automation and they were excited and they were saying i'm so proud of my kids for going into manufacturing because they're excited to work there so this sounds like a conversation we might have again in six months or so or even a year to see yeah. where it's going. Cause it is a conundrum, isn't it? If you can't get people to work, but the pay is too low, yes. but the jobs aren't interesting, but you don't need as many laborers to do the job, but then higher level jobs come up. How do you get people into those jobs? But let's take a different approach to this. Uh, you mentioned to me, I have a funny topic here. I want to talk to you about chips in parking lots. Now we're not talking about, um, yes. what do we call it? We're not talking about um, the, tailgate parties with chocolate chip cookies. Because right. when you told me you want to talk about that, I said, that sounds delicious. Well, chips and parking <laughs> lots has to do with the chip shortage, which we know about. We talk about that often here on Automotive Insiders. And what do OEMs do when they're building cars where they don't have the chips? They put them somewhere. And then what happens when the chips come in, your chips are in, ma'am or sir, how do they get them into the cars? Where are the cars and how do they do that? So take us through the, the chip story or the chip challenge. Tom, we're going to call this the chip challenge. Go ahead. Chip challenge. Chip challenge. And it is going to be a challenge, Bonnie, because, you know, the automotive uh, companies have to make it, they have to make a decision, right? Do they, do they wait to produce the vehicle at all before the chips come in? Or do they try and do as much work as they can to get the vehicle uh, as far as they can through the assembly process and then try and retrofit later with chips. So in many cases, the automotive companies have decided to do the latter. They have actually tried to move the vehicles forward through the assembly process. They have transported them to, you know, stadium parking lots, movie parking lots, you know, any place that they can find some uh, areas to park potentially thousands of vehicles. And that's exactly what they've done while waiting for the chipsets to come in. Um, but if you think about, you know, a manufacturing environment and the control of the work centers and so forth for inserting chips today, um, you know, that employee is in a very controlled environment. Time and motion studies have been done. You know, they know exactly where they need to go. They know where the parts are coming and how they need to move them in. Um, this is going to be far different because you have 
thousands and thousands of vehicles that are going to be in parking lots that have to be retrofitted. Mm. And that is, that's what I was talking about with you is I don't know exactly how the OEMs are, are going to deal with that. I mean, do they, do they give uh, a person about, you know, is it the same employee in the plant? Well, no, it sounds like you'd have to get somebody else because you already, you know, they're going to be building new vehicles. So you have to find somebody else that can go retrofit the vehicles and they have thousands of them to do. Do you hand them a box of chips and they know exactly where to go and which vehicle gets what? I mean, how do you do traceability? Um, and again, this is just a, you know, this is just a discussion topic. I, I don't have a lot of answers, but, you know, one of the things that companies can do to try and, um, you know, if they're looking at very simple ways to track what they've done or, you know, have some handheld uh, devices that can uh, track things and so forth, you can look at low code or no code solutions and try and build those apps that will help you do that. And they, you know, have some very intelligent people sitting down and walk through that process. You know, if I have this box of chips, I have the truck with me that has all of this in there, and I assume I'm going to have VIN numbers that I have to address in the parking lot. I have to have a map of where these vehicles are. Can I build that, you know, into an app that says, here's where the vehicles are, here are the chips that are missing, here is, you know, maybe there's work instructions that can be attached. Um, those are real issues that the OEMs are going to have to solve over the next 18 months, two years, while these vehicles are retrofitted. It sounds so a little bit, a Tom, think about this. Many people don't have Amazon delivered to their homes. They go to an Amazon pickup location, right? Yes. With a box. And they have a, a code, a QR code or some code on their phone in their receipt. And they hold it up to the device that detects it or scans it. And then a particular box opens, correct? Mm -hmm. And they take out their package. Is that any different from finding that car in that parking lot with that chip that goes in that car. Maybe it's the same, you're talking about an app, maybe it's the same concept of instead of putting a package in a box that somebody will pick up, you're putting a chip in a car that maybe somebody will pick up, whether mm -hmm. it's a dealer or an end consumer. Sounds interesting. You know, we're not here to solve all the problems of the automotive world on Automotive Insiders. We're here to talk about the reality of what is. And this is a very, I'm just still going to call it the chip challenge and people can just decide how they <laughs> want to interpret that. Tom Roberts, you're a very interesting gentleman to speak to. You have a lot of knowledge and, and we're very appreciative of your time. Any advice you want to give global advice to automotive suppliers, to the people who are members of OESA right now or who, who may become, I know OESA has some exciting events coming up at the end of this year of 2021. Any, any advice in terms of handling these workforce issues or the chip issues or anything you'd like to share with us? Sure. You know, again, Bonnie, I think that um, the move towards automation is going to become a necessity again, because of the workforce, you know, you and I were talking a little bit earlier, um, you know, in some of the states that rolled back some of the um, additional help around, uh, you know, unemployment during the COVID crisis, they rolled that back early, but there was no statistical, um, there was no statistical uh, change in people going back to work. So, you know, there's something wrong with the workforce I don't, or, or different about the workforce. And I think that automotive companies are not going to be able to price themselves out of it, right? They're not going to be able to just increase wages to just fix the issues. Automation is going to become key. And that would be the thing that I would uh, most advise OESA members is to don't, don't wait on this because, you know, you're going to have to have an investment plan. 
to come up with, you know, which areas you need to automate first and you're going to have to move quickly because there are things happening right now that I, I don't know can be resolved through the workforce. There's a well-known quote from the movie Top Gun, Tom. Are you a, a fan of Tom Cruise movies? Do you remember Top Gun? I am. I, I am. I'm awaiting the second one. And the quote is, I feel the need, the need for speed. Perhaps that needs to be the mantra on multiple levels for automotive suppliers, for OEMs to say, we need to feel the need for speed. You're saying, don't wait. Think forward, plan forward, deal with contingencies, understand where the environment is right now for workforce and automation. What is going to be the buying, the consumer landscape, the industrial purchasing landscape, the fleet landscape, and how do you prepare to be part of that rather than standing on the side legs and saying, whoops, we forgot to be part of this. So it sounds like there's a lot, lot on the table. Tom Roberts at QAD, thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing Thank you your so much, Bonnie. knowledge. Don't go away. We're going to take some pictures. I'm Bonnie D. Graham for Automotive Insiders presented by OESA. Go to OESA.org. I just spelled that out for you. Again, OESA.org. And look at the interesting events coming up and how, if you're not already, you can become a member. Signing off, Tom Roberts. Wave goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Drew Rhodes in the background and David Johnson and Katie Clark. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Automotive Insiders, presented by OESA. Listen at your convenience to industry thought leaders as they discuss the ever-evolving industry and how companies can thrive in the new mobility landscape. All episodes are on demand on the Voice America Business Channel and at OESA.org. Automotive Insider is presented by the Original Equipment Suppliers Association.